remember the first time I saw the bumper sticker that said, Question Authority. And uh, I wasn't raised with a bad view of authority. Many of us were. I think when we hear the term authority now, we're starting to kind of back away from it, thinking that it's a, it's a move for power. Uh, many of us have been stung by authority, the misuse of authority at all levels, in government and other institutions in the church. What, what do you think when you... What, what, what is the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about authority? Have you... Have you suffered under it? Have you profited by it? Are you kind of repelled by the fact we want kind of this, this pure democracy without any authority? We see abuses of it. Bothers us. Well, today I, I hope you're going to see a different type of authority. You know, Matthew in his gospel has been taking great pains to try to establish in those who read it to see the the greatness of Christ as king with all authority. Remember in the first four chapters, he's really working at establishing this unique, unique nature of Jesus as having authority. He, he was a lineage to Abraham, born of a virgin. Kings came and worshipped him. And then you move to chapters 5 and 6 and 7 when Jesus, of course, gave the Sermon on the Mount. And, and they said at the end, he was one as as he taught with authority. He had a unique teaching. He said things like, I'm the light of the world. I'm the salt of the earth. He said things like, depart from me. I never knew you. That he's putting himself, as if it were, in front of the gates of heaven and saying, you come in if I know you. I mean, he had tremendous authority. In chapter 8, in the first half, we studied about the sicknesses. That he healed with a word. He had authority over sickness. He had authority over the seas. When, they were, when the winds were blowing and the seas were whipping up, just one word, be muzzled, and they were muzzled. He had authority over the natural realm. We saw last week how he had authority over the supernatural realm. Right, That whole passage about those demoniacs, if you have that red letter edition, there's only one red letter, only one red word, go. That's all, go, and they're gone. Everything obeys the word of Christ. Matthew again now establishes for us today his authority to forgive sins and to reconcile men and women to God. Jesus has authority to save. He is both able and he's both willing. It's a tremendous passage that should should bring great warmth to our hearts. To the Christian, and we sang that song, Shake Off Your Guilty Fears. This passage can shake off our guilty fears. Or it's going to going to establish a right fear in your heart. If you will, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 9. We'll be reading the first eight verses, and, and we're just going to look at two things. It's a very simple message. Two things. One is that Jesus is going to exercise his divine right to forgive. <clears throat> it's not going to be met without a degree of confrontation, and then we're going to see him demonstrate his divine right to forgive. So he's going to exercise it, and he's going to demonstrate that right. So Matthew 9, 1. Getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now, you see, 9-1 picks up where we left off last week. He was on the other side of the lake. He gets in the boat and crosses the other side. He comes to what he says is his own city. It's Capernaum. It's his adopted town. You know, he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. But he makes Capernaum kind of this base of operations for his Galilean ministry. And so, you know, we read in Matthew very simply. Remember, Matthew is always abbreviating stories. I think this passage maybe has like 90 words in Mark, and, and Luke may have like 220 words. So he's always giving a, a shrink-wrapped version of the story, but he always has a clear intent. And the intent, as I've said, is to establish Jesus as one with authority to forgive. He can forgive. You can trust in that. He really can. So he gives this short account that these men brought this paralytic to Jesus. Now, Matthew or Mark and Luke, in their longer versions, uh, tell us that, in fact, he had been in Capernaum for a couple of days. He had been teaching there. In fact, he was teaching in a home that was packed. It was filled with people. And so these, these friends of the paralytic are bringing this man to Jesus. And uh, they can't get to him because it's packed and they can't even get close. So they took a, a page out of Zacchaeus's book. Zacchaeus climbs a tree to see Jesus. Well, they kind of climb some stairs to get up to the roof of this house where Jesus was teaching. And they get to the spot over which Jesus was teaching, and they begin to dig. Now, what's remarkable about this is, you know, a home in this time, in this area, could have a roof about a foot thick. It was made of, of timbers, and then branches and sticks, kind of like rebar with dried mud. They would even put tile on it so that they could go up there and sleep when the summer months were especially hot. But, but it, was, it was like a room. So these men get up and they start chipping away at the tile, digging through the mud and the dirt, pulling the sticks. You can imagine the effort that they're doing. And, and they're in the, of course, you would imagine Jesus sitting, teaching. He's preaching the kingdom of God, right? And a, sl- a small hole begins to form and it gets bigger and bigger and debris is kind of dumping on people. You can just imagine. I would think as the owner of the house, I'm thinking, who's going to pay to fix the roof? That's my question. Who's going to fix my roof? Because it looks like it's going to be storming tomorrow. And, but, but you can just imagine the determination and the effort of these men on behalf of the paralytic to start digging through. And then they lower him on the mat. And, uh, and, and remember this, too. I think the determination had to be driven in part by this paralytic didn't have a shot in life. Now, we all can at least imagine the life of one struck with paralysis is incredibly difficult. We know that. We know it at least by observation or talking to those who have to walk through life. And the paralysis we're talking about here was a loss of motor skills and inability to walk. We don't know if it's a paraplegic or a quadriplegic, but in this time especially, it would be tremendously brutish life. I mean, not only medical care was non-existent in this culture in this time, um, but, but there were no aids, there were no wheelchairs, there was no... Uh, not that that makes life paralysis better, but it would make it a little easier. But they didn't even have that. So it was a terrible situation to be in. And so when he's lowered down, Jesus looks at him. And, and listen to what he says. Because I tried to slow down 
because sometimes I was speaking with somebody last week about this, you read through these passages and you move through them so quick, you miss so many of the nuances. You know, so, so here's a guy coming through the ceiling. And the first thing Jesus says is, take heart, my son. You know, this affectionate expression of be encouraged, be bold in faith, be hope-filled. That's what Jesus is wanting to encourage him, to strengthen him. Jesus is exercising a tenderness, a mercy, a grace here. But then what he says is, your sins are forgiven. He's saying that right now, the sins that you've committed against God and man are now washed away. You're innocent of those. He's saying that before God, you are innocent and accepted. Now, right off the the bat, if I was in the audience, I, I would be thinking, well, that's nice and everything, but we got a bigger problem here. The man can't walk. I mean, we got, we got an issue here. The needs are obvious. He had to be lowered in through a hole in the roof. And I would, I would well imagine everybody else would say, don't you get it, Jesus? I mean, are you so spiritually minded that you're no earthly good? I mean, the guy can't walk. His life's ruined. I mean, let him walk. Give him the ability to walk, and then his life will be in good shape. I can imagine the paralytic thinking, if I could just walk, I could do this and I could do this, and all of his problems would be removed. I mean, all the issues that he has in life would just fade away if he could walk. I mean, this is a tremendous need the man has. I think any of us can understand that. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, your sins are forgiven. I'd be thinking, I could start a family. I could be a contributing member to society. I mean, this is my biggest problem. And my whole life would be better if he just fixed it and healed me. Well, of course, Jesus doesn't do that. He just goes ahead and forgives his sin. So how do we understand Jesus in this? I mean, just, we're just looking at the first couple of verses right now. But how do we understand Jesus in this? And, and I, would just, I would have us think, now we're the audience, kind of. So some of these stories, I want to paint you as the audience, as if you were there. And, and you're looking, and you're, and you're trying to make heads and tails of this. And I think Jesus is saying to us that we don't know our greatest needs, really. I mean, there is a gaping chasm between what Jesus thinks, this is your greatest need, and what we often come up with as our greatest needs. I mean, if you were to think right now, what do you think you need the most right now to be happy and to be satisfied? And what would it be? So think in your mind, what is your greatest desire for betterment right now? Would it be in a new job? Maybe if you just had that new job, if you had a better boss, would it be, I just want to get married. I just want to be in a relationship with somebody. I just want to have a child. If I had a child, then I would be happy and I'd be satisfied. Or perhaps, I wish my marriage was restored or bettered. Or do you think, if we just were financially set, then I wouldn't have any worries anymore and I'd be okay. What is it in your life that you think is your greatest need? And do you really think, okay, whatever that is in your mind, do you really think that if you got that this afternoon, that Jesus is outside the door and he's handing out to you everything that you think you need most, that a month from now or a year from now, there won't be some other need that you have? I mean, right now it's the job. Two years it might be health. Three years after that it may be a marital issue. What is it? I mean, do you not recognize that your greatest need is actually not the physical or the material or the financial or even the relational. 
your greatest need is the sin that we all struggle with. I mean, that's Jesus' perspective. I don't know how to understand the passage apart from that. That Jesus is working at dealing with this sin. That's why he started out with your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't mean to attach that this sin causes this problem. So Jesus saw a sin in his life which caused paralysis, and therefore I'm going to forgive the sin to heal the paralysis. I, I don't think I want to make that connection at all. But I do think there's something more fundamental here, that Jesus knows, and even Jesus in John chapter 9, he kind of, he kind of, he kind of cut in half this idea. Remember that scene where Jesus comes up to the blind man, and the blind man, you know, the disciples say, well, who sinned, he or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. That's not, we're not supposed to look at sin that way. But here's how we're to look at sin. We're to look at sin that, if you go back in your mind with me to Genesis 2 and 3, you see that the sin of our first parents in, in walking against God, that brought about a curse, and that curse brought about a life that is not as it should be. So we are living in existence marked by suffering, by pain, by trouble, by relational issues, and by death. It was not to be that way. But it was, and it is now, because of our sin. And so Jesus is going back to the most fundamental need we have, which is to be reconciled, to be made right with God, to be forgiven. That's what he's driving at. That the source of our suffering is ultimately our sin. So the source of our joy will ultimately be forgiveness of that sin. That's what Jesus is driving at, to be forgiven of our sins. Does that make all of our problems go away? No, it does not. But it's, it's the core of, of that inward beginning change that God does in our life that will ultimately manifest himself, that one day when we see him, we'll be like him. So he's starting at the middle. He's starting in the deepest part at our deepest need, and he's bringing about forgiveness. So when I say that to you, so you now as a modern audience, what do you hear me saying? So, so do you see your need for forgiveness of sin? Can you understand the passage apart from this? And... and and what do you think your greatest need is? What do you do with the sin in your life? I mean, most of us would, would probably testify that, yeah, we, we do struggle with sin. So what do you do with that? I mean, some of us, at least the more modern man, wants to deny the reality of sin. We want to look at the evil and the struggle of this world as not coming from sin, but coming from educational situations or perhaps poor living conditions or, or institutional evils. Is that the way you feel, that you want to deny sin? The modern man has trouble agreeing that sin is at the base of much of our trouble. In fact, C.S. Lewis writes in his book, or actually it was an essay, it's God in the dock, the dock being a place of the accused, British court system, that, that God's in the dock now. Here's what he says. He says, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches God. The judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge, and God is in the dock. He is quite kindly of a judge, that is the man. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end up in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench as judge, and God is in the dock as the accused. Is that the way you feel about sin? That you use sin as an excuse to disavow any belief in God? I mean, do, do we fail to see the holiness of God? 
and recognize that sin is and could be at the root of all of our struggles? Or let me ask you this. Perhaps you're not over there. Perhaps you're over here. You're overwhelmed by your sin. Maybe you're in despair over your sin. You can't believe the depths of sin. I, I don't want to err on either side. You know, to the person that is overwhelmed with sin, I would say, do you see the tenderness of Jesus? Do you see the compassion of Jesus? I mean, these men who brought this man, this paralytic, we assume they all had faith. They pursued him. They came to him. And the first thing that Jesus says is, is take heart. Be encouraged. I mean, can't you, wouldn't you love to hear this authority, this king, this beautiful king, Jesus, say, be encouraged? I mean, because why? He knows that he's going to forgive his sins, and he knows that that is the beginning point of all health and all happiness and all betterment. There's a kindness there. We fail to see the mercy of God sometimes. Perhaps you're even thinking that you've gone so far over the edge You've repeated sin so often, it has you by the throat, as we said last week, that God won't forgive you anymore. Well, I, I, would, I would like to challenge that with this passage and say, there's always forgiveness for those who come by faith. Now, some of you perhaps are not Christians. You're looking at the faith and you're debating it, and there is. To become a Christian, there is that time where we have to recognize our sin and say, Father, forgive me in the name of Jesus. Bring me to yourself as a son. That's for the non-Christian. But for the Christian, we're still seeking forgiveness. This is what Larry just prayed about, that we're preaching the gospel to ourselves, that we're reminding of ourselves of, of that forgiveness is plentiful in Christ, coming by faith that he has the authority and the power to forgive. That's what it's about. Okay, so Jesus exercises his right to forgive, and he forgives this, and he forgives us. But then look what happens, because there's this confrontation, and this is going to bring about Jesus' demonstration. I would make, I, I would say this. If we didn't hit the confrontation in verse 3, I don't know that he would have healed the man. Jesus met his greatest problem by saying, you're forgiven. That man could have gone home glorifying God, carried by the friends that brought him. I'm convinced of that. I have no doubt in my mind. I think we're going to see this demonstration of his authority because of the confrontation of the Pharisees. Look back in, chapter, in verse 3. It says, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Now, this is the first confrontation we find in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's only going to ramp up. We're going to hit it next week and the week after, and it's going to ultimately end, of course, in the crucifixion. So there's this confrontation. These are scribes. They're, they're the ones that copied the scriptures that would be used in synagogues. They would teach the law as well. And Luke's gospel says that they're even Pharisees. So you have this religious contingent around Jesus. Jesus had done all these miracles. He was getting this tremendous popularity. And so you have these people beginning to, we've got to check this guy out. We've got, we got to make sure he's on the up and up. And so they're there looking at him. And when he pronounces forgiveness, they move with this man's blaspheming. They don't use his name, and they don't give him a title. He's just a generic guy. This man is blaspheming. Now, blaspheming, as you know, is, is a word which indicates a violation of God's moral majesty, his beauty. It's taking a prerogative of God as our own. And they say, they say he's blaspheming. Why? Well, he knows, by the way. Did, did he hear them say it? We don't know. Did Jesus peer into their heart? We know that in John 2, 24 and 25, he knows the hearts of all men. 
Or perhaps you saw their body language. Perhaps you saw them whispering. After pronouncing forgiveness, they begin huddling together and talking about it. Either way, they accuse him of blasphemy. Why? Because he forgave the man's sins. He forgave the sins. In other words, it isn't like a priest. A priest could confer or pronounce forgiveness upon a sinner who had brought a sacrifice that was sacrificed in the temple. There's no temple here. There's no sacrifice. And Jesus is not pronouncing forgiveness as if he's a channel of God's forgiveness. He is the source of it. So he's saying, you're forgiven. It's on my word you're forgiven. He's taking a prerogative of God. He's doing what only God's doing. He's doing what only God can do. And so they're saying he's blaspheming. Because he's only doing what God can do. Now, let's give the scribes a break for just a minute. They did get it. They did get it. He was doing that. I mean, what would you do, really? I mean, it's so easy to look at the scribes and just to pick on them, like, But what would you do if I came up and I started walking around? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. What would you do? Wouldn't you say, first, let's check his temperature. Let's make sure he's not having some sort of cerebral problem. You would think I would either have been gone crazy or that I was massively arrogant, taking on my shoulders something that is not mine to take. How can Jesus forgive the sins against God if he were not God? And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus, he asks questions to get us to think. And look at the two questions he asks. He says this, he says, he says, well, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Well, what do you think? I mean, we all are forced to answer this question. What's easier? What is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Well, of course, at one level, I think you would agree with me, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, because it's not objectively verifiable. I mean, I can say it to you. I can pronounce forgiveness, and we don't really know, right? It's not, it can't be confirmed, can it? In fact, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London, mid-19th century, said, thousands have have pretended to absolve men of sins. This this is so good. Thousands have pretended to absolve men of sins who would have not dared to command a disease to disappear. We wouldn't have the guts to do it. Why? Because it might not go away. And then all of a sudden I'm exposed as a fraud. But I can pronounce sins because you can't check. And so Jesus says... In their minds, they're thinking, we know it's easier to forgive sins. So he says, so that you know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say, rise, get up and walk. Now, when he said that, so when he said that, remember how we've seen Jesus' word? He he, he cleansed the leper with the word, be clean. He uh, healed the servant of the paralytic. He says, go back home, he's healed. He, he, uh, with the word, he calms the storms. With the word, he casts out demons. And with the word, he says, get up. And at the word of Christ, power is infused in these atrophied limbs, these unresponsive limbs, all of a sudden get life. And he gets up and walks. Now, let me remind you, this isn't, we've got a long road ahead of recovery here. He gets up, grabs his mat, and walks. He could jump in a soccer match on the way home. He's totally healed, instantaneously, immediately, fully, completely, he's healed. It's, It's absolutely amazing, the power of the word. By the way, Jesus' word that we have just 
marveled over is the same word we read. So it's the same word that has power. When you believe the word, it will never return void. It will always accomplish what it intends to do. So Jesus heals the man, and he's really showing the, the, um, the physical miracle is really just proving the spiritual miracle, right? I mean, the miracle that they see is only to show them that it's true of the miracle they didn't see, right? The physical healing was only intending to be a buttress or support to the spiritual healing. So that's why I say, I think if the confrontation didn't occur, I don't know that he would have healed them because that wasn't the ultimate need that had to be met. But let me, let me, let me say something at a deeper level. When I go back to the question, and I think, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Isn't it harder to say your sins are forgiven? Isn't it harder to say that? I mean, only, only God could say that. It's an eternal pronouncement that you are forever accepted by God. Isn't that harder than just to make legs that don't work work again? Isn't it incredible when you think about the biblical understanding of forgiveness that it demands a sacrifice, right? In Leviticus 17, it says, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. So forgiveness doesn't come by cheap in God's economy, that a sacrifice has to be offered. When you think about the whole Old Testament, that whole sacrificial system is built to show us forgiveness is never cheap. Something's dying when you're forgiven. It's a lamb that's going to be slaughtered. So forgiveness is kind of a hard thing to do in my mind. And what's amazing here is Jesus issues the statement, you are forgiven. There's no temple, there's no sacrifice. That's significant. They would never issue forgiveness apart from a sacrifice. So what is he doing here? Well, it's interesting that in chapter 12, uh, Jesus actually says these words in 12.6. He says, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. In other words, Jesus is... The whole temple is pointing to Jesus. This is why the evangelical never needs to look for another temple to be built. There is no temple that needs to be built. Jesus is greater than the temple. The temple was a shadow pointing to the perfect one to come, the substance. Once the substance has come and done the work, we never go back to the shadow of the temple. Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. He's recognizing he has the authority to say it because he's going to exercise his same authority to lay down his life. Jesus knows that he will bring about the forgiveness by his own death. Jesus knows, yes, you're forgiven because I'm going to die for those sins. Jesus has authority to lay down his life. And that's what he's doing here. That's why I think it's harder to say your sins are forgiven. Because he knew that it would lead him to Golgotha. He knew it would lead him to a cross. He knew that he would end up dying for this forgiveness that he was issuing to this paralytic. The physical healing, the man had to be carried to the hole when he died anyways. That was just a temporary issue. It's harder to say your sins are forgiven. But what's interesting about it is not only do we see the authority that he has because he's the one that's dying, but we see his identity. Look at how he references himself. He says, 
the Son of Man, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority. Remember the Son of Man. We've hit this before. Let me remind you. It's an expression. It's a term that nobody uses of Jesus except Jesus uses it of himself. And it references Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In Daniel 7, you see this picture. Daniel's painting a picture, and you see God. He's called the Ancient of Days. And it says, one like a Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. So you see Jesus, the Son of Man, appear before God. And God gives him all authority over all the nations, over all the peoples. So this one, who is like the Son of Man, now has authority over all things and all people. That is who Jesus Christ is. He is the Son of Man with all authority, and he's going to use his authority to lay down his life to save us, to to become part of that kingdom. It's incredible when you see the height from which he came to say, your sins are forgiven. Profound. The incarnation is overwhelming. When we have trouble moving towards people that we perceive are a little bit less than us, Jesus, as the Son of Man, who before the Ancient of Days was given all authority over all things, comes and says, your sins are forgiven, my son. Take heart. Of course he should take heart. For the non-Christian here, I wonder, what do you do with your sins? I mean, it's a good question to ask yourself. How do I reconcile my sins? Are they something that I can just pass off as bad mistakes or poor judgment? That's the way generally our politicians handle it. Error and judgment. Okay, it's all, it's all finished now. What do you do with the guilt, though? You know, a poll was taken at USA Today a number of years ago that said 34% of Americans just feel guilty. No reason. They just feel a measure of guilt, that kind of cloudish feel. I think it's because we just know it's not right. We just know something's out of sync. What do you do? Jesus offers forgiveness. He has the authority to forgive the non-Christian that comes to him by faith. He has authority because he's going to lay down his life and fully, fully bear the wrath of God. This is the gospel. Jesus comes and bears the wrath of God for all of our sins so that we can have total forgiveness. But how about the Christian here? When you hear this, doesn't your heart soar? Those of you who struggle with past sins, you want to drag those corpses behind you, don't you feel a measure of freedom with this? I mean, do you not feel confident now knowing that the one who issues the forgiveness is the one who earns the forgiveness? Don't you feel this measure of, yes, I can be free? I think about Bunyan and and, his book Pilgrim's Progress and And when the burden was removed from Christian's shoulders, you know, he's kind of walking around. He just stands up. He's free. My sins have been paid for by the one who will pay for them. It's incredible. So we have two points to the sermon. It's very simple. Jesus exercises this authority, right? And he demonstrates it with this power of healing. The healing is a subplot for the greater healing of the forgiveness of sins. Have you experienced that forgiveness? Do you have the joy attendant with it? Well, well, look with me for just a minute, because there's a reaction to Jesus in this passage. And and there's a number of players in this reaction. Everybody's reacting differently. And I love preaching through the gospel, because you always have audience that react to what's happening, and so it helps us to understand what's going on. Well, you have the first group here, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? They're kind of antagonistic to Jesus. 
right? Those that were murmuring among themselves saying, you know, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And so you have them, what are they saying here? Well, actually, nothing. They're saying nothing. They don't say a word. They're silent. You would think they'd say, hmm, kind of wrong on that one. You don't hear a thing about it. And, and the reason you don't is because they're already plotting, and we're going to see this in the next number of weeks. They have very hard hearts against Jesus Christ. And, and what's amazing about this is the fact that, you know, most people reject Jesus not after a well-calibrated understanding review of the facts. Very few people that I've ever met have thought through the nature of the Christian faith and rejected it on how it purports to be through the scriptures. They're angry at his attention. They're angry at his popularity. And we're going to see that over the next few weeks. But they're antagonistic toward him. Their hearts are hard. They're not going to have anything to do with them. And I, and I wonder, you know, it's really no different. Paul said that the gospel causes a division within people. Saying to you that your greatest problem is a sin in your life and you need Jesus as Savior to save you, that rattles people. Some of those of the intelligentsia, I'm obviously not part of that group, can't even say the word, those in the intelligentsia <clears throat> look down at this as a fairy tale and a joke. I mean, come on. Sin, Jesus dying on a cross, God being appeased, all that sounds like cosmic child abuse to me. Forget it, I don't want any part of it. And they just write it off as a fairy tale. Others tend to, you can always tell when I don't shave closely, you hear that pop. No kidding. Uh, so, so those who are moral, those who are religious, also rebel against this message because you think, you know what, I've done enough. I've tried hard. I haven't done what everybody, don't tell me I need something like this. I don't need what the, the guy sleeping in the gutter needs. I don't need that. I'm cleaned up, I'm polished, I have a degree, I'm intelligent, I'm, I'm paying my taxes, I'm a good person. I'm not like the, the scum. And we think we don't need it. We rebel against the gospel because we, we think we've done enough. I ask people, well, are you feel comfortable with God? Yeah, yeah, they say. And they're quick to remind me what they've done and what they haven't done, which justifies themselves to themselves. So there's an antagonism that doesn't have to be fists clinched. There can be an antagonism to the gospel that fully rejects Christ. But there's also this, and I pray you're not in that. And if you are antagonistic, if you are kind of angry at this message, I would love to talk to you about that. Jesus is gentle. He's, he's kind of hard. But then there's this astonished group here. And you see this among the, the onlookers, right? They're looking at him. And they, it says, when he rose and went home, the crowd saw they were afraid. Well, of course they were afraid. You can imagine them being in fear. If you saw something that you knew was well beyond any human capacity, you would get a little nervous. I mean, when a lightning bolt flashes right near you, you know it's outside of your power, and it gets you in fear. I mean, there are, there are certain, they had enough common sense to realize God had to do that. That stuff doesn't happen around this parts of town. God had to do that, and if that's the case, then there is an immediate fear. It's a warning for all of us, actually. This idea of just running up to Jesus and hugging him, I mean, I think we're going to be crawling. I mean, there's going to be a fear over his holiness. 
At least John had that in Revelation chapter 1. I fell at his feet as though dead. I think that's probably going to be more of our reaction. A joyful, just can't believe it. But, but so they were astonished. They were in fear. But it, and it says they glorified God. But here's what they said. It's kind of an interesting final phrase. He says, they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Did they get it? Was my question. They didn't give it to men. God gave that authority to Jesus, not to men. And so did they really get it? They glorified him, but does that mean they worship him? I don't see anything following about they getting in line saying, I want to be forgiven too. I want to be forgiven as well. I kind of call this a miracle faith. You see God move, and you do admit and acknowledge it's God. But it doesn't lead you to a repentance. It doesn't lead you to see the wretchedness of your soul and the need for a Savior. It doesn't lead you there. And if it doesn't lead you there, then I call it a miracle faith. It's a wow. It's a flash in the pan. Yeah, we saw God two weeks ago when he healed so-and-so. But it doesn't bring them anywhere closer to God through this Redeemer that he sends. So it's kind of a counterfeit. It's a dangerous one. Because you think you know God, but you haven't come to God through the Son that he sent. And Jesus said clearly, if you don't honor me, you don't honor God. So you need to feel about Jesus like you feel about God. But then there's this last group here. Well, not last group, the man and probably the paralytic's friends, although I assume they went home with him. I love it. Jesus told him to go home. He did that last week with the demoniacs that were healed. Remember, they wanted to come and follow Jesus. And, uh, and in fact, Jesus said, no, go home and tell them all that God had done for you. And Jesus sends him home. It's a great place where we begin evangelism, actually, people. You begin in your home. And he sends him home to tell. And in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5, it says he went home glorifying God. And I think he went home glorifying God, rightly glorifying God. Why? Because his legs working were a testimony that he had been forgiven, that all his sins had been removed, all of his shame had been taken away, all the guilt that he incurred over all his sins had been wiped away because the one who would die for him pronounced it and he was going to affect it on the cross. That's the response for the Christian. It's joy, it's worship, it's satisfaction. It's the fact that this is what gives birth to our worship here. This is what should be the fuel of your joy in the Christian faith. The fact that you've been forgiven is what fuels your joy. Right? Didn't Jesus say in Luke 7, He who has been forgiven much loves much? I wonder if sometimes the lack of joy that we have, the lack of passion that we have, it is, is somehow tied to the fact that we look at his forgiveness as nice. Yeah, it's a help. But we aren't overwhelmed with the work that he did for us. And, and if you could just take the catalog of sins, you know, because it says in Matthew chapter 12, 36, that everything said and everything done will be brought up before him. Can you imagine when that catalog is rolled out and it just says paid for, paid for, paid for? Okay, I bet you your love's going to swell. I bet you when you see it all, I've forgotten half of my sin, when I see it all and it's all been paid for, I bet you I'll love him more. I don't want to wait till that day, friends. I want to do it now. I want to think through the gospel now, every day. This is what he did for me. And I I want that joy to come in my heart, not because events are going well this week. I want that joy to be coming in my heart because of what he's done for me for eternal purposes. So you have, you've been kind of an audience to the story. 
And you can react to it as well today. You can be in a position of, of kind of even benign antagonism. And I would ask you, why do you have guilt then? What are you going to do with your guilt? You can be in a position of astonishment, but you don't see your own need for forgiveness. That's a counterfeit faith. Or you can be in that position of rejoicing over what God has done. And for anybody that you feel that your heart may be pressing you right now, uh, then I would encourage you to, after the service, to come forward or talk to somebody next to you. I trust the Spirit of God working in the members of this church to be able to articulate the gospel to you. Let me pray for you, and then we'll celebrate the table. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus, the Son of Man with authority to forgive, and his authority is rooted both in his glory but also in the humiliation. Father, thank you. It is a truth that is transcendent and eternal. We are so here And now, would you break through our physical and our temporal and our material loves with this truth? Would you open our eyes to see the glory of Christ and the forgiveness that he offers with such tenderness and kindness? I pray that you would draw even some now from darkness to light that they would see that it's through faith in Christ leads to forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.